Hello, everyone. This is the first episode of The Wally Pod, a show where I interview my peers who are embarking on their careers in areas from investment banking to software engineering to entrepreneurship and more. We explore the lessons they learn navigating college, their plan for future success, and the views they hold on the future of the world as the next generation that is taking the reins. Subscribe to join me weekly for informational and motivating interviews. This week, we talk with my good friend Matt Welper discussing his several business ventures, internships, working in Singapore, college advice, and his upcoming job at J.P. Morgan. Welcome to the podcast, Matt. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Wally. We can start with a short history of us. We originally met at the University of Wisconsin and ended up living together last summer in Chicago, and we'll be moving in together again this coming fall as we begin our full-time jobs. I was trying to think how we first met. I feel like it was probably through the Investment Banking Club. Do you remember? Might have been that or might have been uh, business analytics too, honestly. Yeah, you you may be right. I was trying to figure out what came first. To get started, do you want to give everyone a brief overview of your bio? Yeah, of course. So I guess just a little bit of background about me. I am originally from Jefferson, Wisconsin, which is just like a small farming town about halfway between Madison and Milwaukee. Uh, first jobs I had there were just a few local landscaping jobs and then work as a local farmhand at a few other places. Then throughout high school, college, started a few businesses and that's what I mainly did for employment. Then after that, decided I was a little bit more interested in the finance aspect of things. So I uh, ended up having internships at uh, Goldman Sachs, JP Morgan, and then I had a stint at a venture capital firm in Singapore. And I guess moving forward, I think that uh, after school, I'll be working at JP Morgan in their investment banking division, but uh, I am pretty interested in the impact investing and alternative investing side of things. So after working at JP, hopefully trying to get my MBA and then try to transition into alternative and impact investing. But I guess other than career stuff, as far as interests go, pretty interested in meditation, absolutely love barbecue, uh, big fan of the Colonel's Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, spare time, I have like some audiobooks too. All right. Awesome. Thanks for that. I've got, I think, most of those things on the list to talk about. And I asked you on here as the first person, not only because I knew you wouldn't mind being like a kind of the guinea pig, but also because you have done so much stuff, much more than many other people could squeeze into college. And I kind of, I want to start out with some of the companies you've worked on. I know about Premier Student Painting, and I saw on your LinkedIn you have the Pizza Roller as well, and I know you did an advertising company, and I don't know exactly which one came first, but could you start off with that one and tell us about how it started? Yeah, definitely. So the first one would be a business called Premier Student Painting. Uh, I guess if there's any college students listening right now, I'm sure you guys have heard of College Works Painting. They've probably come into a lot of your classes and give you guys a spiel, but Basically, it was kind of started off of that premise. College Works Painting basically recruits a lot of college kids, teaches them how to paint, sets up all their contracts for them, everything like that. But they take 45% of every piece of revenue that they make. 
So I kind of just started this on the assumption that there was not really any college works kids in the area that I lived. And I really didn't want to pay 45% of everything I made to a, I guess, governing body that didn't really provide that much for revenue. So decided to start this on my own, kind of just hired a bunch of friends from high school, other local colleges, tried going on Craigslist for a little bit, did not work that well. A lot of, a lot of 45-year-old painters that drank like two entire liters of Mountain Dew every day that were on the painting staff that didn't work out that well. But uh, yeah, kind of just started the crew by myself and then eventually got to the point where we scaled it up, started a few other franchises in Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Illinois. And then after it got to a point where it was sustainable, I could eventually just have one of the franchise owners take it over for the operations part that I just kind of get a pass for royalty from it now. That is super impressive. And so people know this is, this is not just like you started some like neighborhood thing. I read on your LinkedIn that you you had over 250,000 in revenue. Was that over how many years you had you had this thing going for 3 years? So that was just for the 250,000. That was just in the last year that I was actually running it. So that was during the summer of my sophomore year in college. So that was 250,000 in revenue that summer and then now I think they during the last year of operation when I kind of phased it off it was at about 100,000 in revenue. But at its peak it was around 250,000. So could you pretty clearly see from the beginning that there was a huge market that you could tap into or how did it start out? What was the first summer like? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess right away it seemed a little bit overwhelming because you have all these high schoolers that have never really painted before. And just the idea of sort of having somebody trust you to give them thousands of dollars to somebody you've never met and some high school kid that just showed up on your door didn't immediately seem that scalable. But then after I sort of recruited other people into helping me try to make sales, I realized that it really wasn't that specialized. It was sort of something that really required a lot of value, uh, sorry, volume rather than actually specialized sales skills. Because we actually just got our business by going door to door, asking people if they wanted free paint estimates. And then from there, just almost saying we're motivated high school students, could you help us out here? And it was pretty surprising how many people were just willing to help out based on that sales pitch regardless of us not having any painting experience whatsoever and really not offering that great of a discount. So it was pretty, pretty interesting to see how willing people were to actually commit to that. And then once I saw that there wasn't actually that specialized sales skills necessary, it seemed like it was going to be pretty scalable after that, but definitely overwhelming initially, I'd say. I imagine I, I can't imagine like being a homeowner and just, letting someone paint my house that's walked up to my front door and is like a high school kid. Yeah. Cause that's a big deal. Like I, I imagine down the road you could show people all the work that you've done and maybe you had customer testimonials, but at the beginning, how did you get people to trust you? Like how, how did you go about talking, like walking up to the door and, and eventually making a sale just right off the bat there? Yeah. So, I mean, there's like so many like guesses and checks of like theories that like worked better for sales and what didn't. But I mean, I think the the main thing that it came down to was going to a large amount of doors because I would guess that if we knocked on a hundred doors, maybe like one person would say yes on a good day. So I guess just being brutally okay with rejection was kind of like the big thing that you had to get over. And then other than that, it seemed like points of contact was a big deal. Just 
instead of doing it all at once, like knocking on someone's door, asking if they want a free pain estimate and then giving them the estimate, sort of giving them the sales pitch, we kind of segregated it out. So we made sure we got the yes and then established a future date of contact. And then just sort of as we established like different points of contacts throughout the sales process, it seemed like that really increased the odds of success. It seems like they came, became a lot more invested in the process by just saying yes so many different times. And then it seemed like at a certain point, they're almost just entrenched beyond a point of return. So it seemed like that helped a little bit. Yeah, that, that makes sense. But did you enjoy the, the sales experience? And, and if so, why is, that, why is that not a career that you decided to pursue right out of college, a, a more directly sales-oriented career? Yeah, I would say that initially I definitely enjoyed the sales experience. I think that like when you go knocking on everybody's doors and you get 50 no's in a row, it definitely takes a little bit of a blow to you. But when you actually get to get into somebody's house and connect with them and for our down payments, just so we could buy the paint and supplies for everything, we usually ask for a 25% down payment. So I guess just kind of the feeling that you get when you just ask somebody that you've never met before for let's say like $1,000 to $1,200. And then they trust you so much just based on that initial contact that they're willing to give it to you, despite no actual guarantee that you're not just going to run off with their money. I think that establishing that kind of intimate connection with people is actually pretty interesting. And I think that the sales aspect really developed social skills beyond just trying to get people's deposits. It seemed like there's an actual legitimate connection that needed to be with people in order for them to trust you. So I think that that was really interesting. But I think the thing that made me really not want to pursue it is that it's kind of hard in your free time, just knowing that any time that you're spending relaxing, you could sort of kind of calculate how much money you're missing out on, which seems like it'd be really hard and kind of unsustainable. Like when you're 30 or 40, just realizing that spending time with your kids or something, you could just be out there making sales. So I think that's kind of like a frustrating opportunity cost I always have over your head. Yeah, that makes sense. I'm laughing a little yeah. bit because you picked a career that now you just get to have all your time for work and have a fixed salary for it. Exactly. Basically. But then, yeah, I kind of like almost like the lack of control with that, though, just like knowing that it's like not up to my discretion to how much I want to work, which sounds like a little bit perverse and kind of counterintuitive. But I don't know. Makes sense a little bit, I guess. I I I think it makes sense. I've I've heard that a lot from salespeople. It's it's hard to ever turn it off. Yeah. I know we, we could talk about this for a long time, I feel like, but you've got a lot of other things that we need to discuss. So I don't know if you want to talk about, I don't, I don't know anything about the pizza roller business. It was a pretty simple idea. I just started that with my brother going into my freshman year in college. And I mean, the idea really wasn't anything that that was that, original basically we just saw people waiting like three hours in line at ian's and like waiting for an hour for domino's delivery right by bar hours so we kind of just started an ice cream truck that was basically geared at selling drunk college kids pizza during bar hours so we thought that that would just be kind of interesting and surprisingly initially we really didn't make that much money on the pizza sales uh there was just so many logistical issues the vehicle didn't work properly but then eventually we found out that we could just sell out the sides of the vehicle for advertising space just because the vehicle was just so damn loud and annoying, had LED lights and just some dude with a megaphone yelling at drunk college kids that everybody was looking at it. 
So figured it'd be a great way to advertise. So eventually we just got a sponsorship from JSM Properties, which made the business easier to sort of sell and then ended up selling it to Rosati's Pizzas in Chicago. So was that the main form of the company's income, just the advertising then on the side? Damn near all of it. We were basically just like an advertising business that also sold pizza. That's that's really funny. And is that what kind of rolled into your advertising company idea? Yeah, almost. It, that's exactly it, actually. So the advertising business was almost just like Craigslist, but for advertising. Basically, if you have any ad space, kind of like we did with the pizza roller, we would post the size of the vehicle on the website and then companies would bid on the advertising space. And then after seven days, basically the highest bidder would be able to post on the advertising space. And then we would just connect the buyer and the seller and then take a transaction fee from both parties. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, I skipped over this a little bit, but you mentioned that you sold the pizza roller to Rosati's. Tell us about how that happened and what ended up happening with selling to another company in that whole process. Cause that's kind of what you're going into now full time at a bigger scale. Yeah. So, uh, initially we, uh, for the pizza roller, we didn't make our own pizza. We just got it from local pizza suppliers and we had reached out to Rosati's initially to see if they wanted to supply us pizza. And they always kind of had a back and forth exchange with us, just seeing if we ended up wanting to switch because we went with a different pizza provider called Felbo's in Middleton. But we kind of established a pre-existing relationship with them. And then after a while, once they found out that we had the advertising deal that was signed for three to four years, then it kind of interested them because they could have that recurring source of revenue. And then it also made the business a lot more easy to value just because we had absolutely zero revenue besides that advertising deal. So just the fact that we had that pre-existing relationship and an extremely unprecedentedly consistent revenue stream, I think that that made the business pretty easy to sell, especially since we already had our foot in the door with them. So high level here, most college kids will just find a job to work for someone else for an hourly pay. What do you think motivated you to start these companies? And why did you think that was a better path for you to go down than say, just work in an hourly job somewhere? Uh, I guess like initially what got me into it just was that, I mean, I was like 16 when I started the first one and that was just so you can make so much more money doing the starting your own business. But then after actually starting the first one, it just kind of made me realize how easy it was to actually start the business. I mean, all you have to do is start an LLC, pay like a hundred dollars and then you officially just separate all of your assets from the business and you have no risk to it whatsoever. So just having that ability to pay a hundred dollars and then be able to start a company that has actually no risk to any of your personal assets, I thought was pretty dang cool how you just start it like that. So I think that I kind of the creativity that allowed you to have was pretty interesting. I think that the job that I had right before I started my first business, I was just working as a drive-in theater employee. And I think it was just overall a lot less stimulating. So I think that initially is probably just because of the money. And then afterwards, I just realized how much creativity and freedom it allows you, especially in college when you don't really have that much flexibility when it comes to also having to accommodate classes. So I think that it was just really allowed a lot of freedom and creativity beyond just a standard hourly job that I think that's kind of what kept me interested in starting more businesses. Do you have anything going on right now or 
are you thinking of any ideas for down the road that you're really interested in and in running a company for? Uh, in terms of actually like an operational business idea, not terribly. Uh, I, there's always like, it's always kind of fun to like throw ideas around and just kind of conceptualize things like that. But if I had to guess, I would say that if I were to start a business after I get my MBA or after banking or something like that, I'd have to say that it'd likely be sort of a, some type of investment fund. I think just having the connection with institutional investors through an MBA program and investment banking, it seems like it'd be pretty easy to get funding and then just be able to take a management fee from that. But mm -hmm. I guess at the time it'd be, I'd be pretty much open to anything. I think I definitely could not see myself not being in some entrepreneurial role after I'm 40. So just have to see, have to see what route I go down with that. Yeah. Yeah. We'll have to come up with some ideas and in our few hours of free yeah. time. We'll have to get the whiteboard here. out in Chicago. Oh yeah, of course. So let's, let's actually, let's start getting into more about what you did at Wisconsin and your path into finance. But if you can think of just like general recommendations for people that are going into college right now or are currently in college trying to consider different career options that they have or even different major paths that they can go down, what would you say to someone that's going into college for the first time right now? Uh, I guess going off the clubs, uh, it definitely helps to be in a professional club like with what we did in IBC. Uh, and I think looking back on it, I really didn't do all that many clubs during my freshman and sophomore year. And I kind of wish I would have been able to explore some, I guess, non-career related paths. Like I know you were at Hoofers for a little bit and doing something like that seems like it'd be pretty interesting developing a lifelong skill at a really pretty cheap price that you can be able to use for a while. So I guess retrospectively, I kind of wish I would have done a few more of those. And then also kind of similar to what you did. When I got to like my senior year, that's when I had a lot of credit space available. But at that point, I was kind of looking at taking like a comp sci class or something like that. But eventually it just seemed like if I'm going to only take one comp sci class, it doesn't seem like it's going to really add that much value. So I would say something that I wish I would have done would be exploring different minor and different certificate career paths during your freshman and sophomore year kind of seeing if there is something that you can actually develop as a sustainable skill rather than just taking one class and waiting towards your senior year. So I would say that's something that I definitely, definitely wish I would have done, but then also just in general, diversifying away from just one career path, I think is a great idea. I don't think it needs to be something structured through the university. Uh, for example, I think if you have any leisure time and you're looking for something to read or something to explore further, I would definitely recommend doing something beyond just finance, engineering, or whatever your initial major is. I think that if you just are within the framework of the goals that you said initially when you were a freshman, it's kind of hard to see if you actually chose the right goals. I think you need some time to reevaluate and see what your actual life goals are beyond your career. So sort of exploring some self-development, your later junior and senior years, maybe once you have your internships locked up, I think is incredibly valuable and something that I'm definitely glad I did at least. Yeah. Yeah, that makes sense. And I, I definitely agree with what you said. And I I am happy I also got to have some sort of more recreational club experience, like you said, because colleges have so many resources and these clubs often get funded by the universities. And oftentimes you can participate in a lot of things that would 
be unreachable financially as a college student. So throughout college, um, you obviously did well and had internships throughout, but what were some of the biggest challenges you had and how did you overcome them and, and what recommendations do you have for people to either avoid them or to overcome them? I would say, I guess going in chronological order, I guess freshman year when you're kind of thinking about college, you don't really think about how much downtime you actually have. So, I mean, I remember when I got to college freshman year, I tried to take like 13 credits for a semester. And I think that was a good move workload wise, but I didn't really realize how much free time I would have just literally like eight, 10 hours a day where you weren't in class and maybe didn't even require that much homework. So I think just having some immediate sort of a to-do list that you have with your free time, just maybe if you have a certain amount of books that you want to read, if you have any outside activities or maybe even entrepreneurial stuff that you want to pursue, I think that that was huge freshman year because I'm not I guess a lot of people that go to Madison aren't really people that are familiar with having that much downtime, especially with the amount of high school activities you need to get into a college like that. So I think that that was a little bit of a shock. So I think that having like a little bit of a, I guess, extracurricular to-do list and a list of activities that you can participate in in case you just are really someone who doesn't like downtime like me. So I think that that was really nice. Uh, I guess other challenges would be I remember during our sophomore year when we had the first investment banking recruiting season, that was incredibly stressful because we didn't really know that the recruiting season was going to be moved up and just how volatile the process was in general. So I think something that would help there would just be not really comparing yourself immediately to the people you're recruiting against at Wisconsin, just realizing that three to four years down the road from now, you're not actually going to be really in that close of contact with a lot of them. So comparing yourselves right now is pretty arbitrary and really not that relevant to your future career and how you're going to be comparing yourself then. So I think just taking a step back and realizing that these aren't your competitors that can help you out in the process. I think that was probably something I wish I would have realized more at the time. Uh, and I think also probably not the uh, most intellectually curious advice, but something that I did that kind of like freed up a lot of time was if there's a class that really didn't seem that interesting to me, that I knew had a really low grade distribution is going to be a lot of work. I usually just took that at another university. I think people really don't give that much credit, but I know I took like biz law, marketing, and like all the classes I really didn't want to take. I knew were going to be very intense workloads. I took those at other schools. I don't know if that's exactly the best thing that you can do from a well-rounded standpoint, but I think that that freed up a lot of time for me able to be able to sort of read leisurely and look into subjects that really were probably going to be more helpful to me overall in life. So I think just sort of not being pressured into avoiding loopholes, I would say is kind of a, kind of something I'm glad I did. Not sure how well that advice would hold up, but something that I kind of stick to. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I did not do that, but I, I think that's great advice, not just for like, certainly for classes that maybe like you said, have are difficult, but maybe not that helpful to you but just in like a way to save money i think people should yeah. really look into that more i i wish i had i think it should certainly be considered for gen eds that people take freshman and sophomore year like i i do not know why it's not more of a thing for people to take online courses for even like half their schedule freshman and sophomore year 
Yeah, um, exactly. Especially for people at private schools or paying out-of-state tuition, that's got to be such a good way to save money. And I think we're going to see a lot more of that in years to come, especially as online school becomes much more prevalent. Oh, for sure. Yeah. You talked a little bit about investment banking recruiting, and, and we'll get to that in a minute. But why don't you tell us about how you got interested in finance and and how you ended up getting your first internship? Yeah, so I guess like interested in finance initially, I'd say when I was younger, probably like eight or 10, my grandpa was a farmer and he kind of always liked to trade in corn futures, mainly just because he loved gambling, but that kind of got me interested in the whole process of actually learning about finance. And then after that, it's just kind of a gradual increase, just made a lot of sense. I mean, you remember those career surveys you had to take freshman year that told you like, you fill out that you like math and you like a bunch of other stuff. They told you you should go into finance. Like, sure, sounds good to me. But then after that, it just kind of progressed naturally. Enjoyed the finance classes more than I liked any other quantitative business classes. So just seemed like a natural fit. And then from there, uh, worked at Goldman my sophomore year in the credit research division. And then that kind of gradually funneled me into investment banking. Realized that it was kind of at the pace that I wanted it to be and really in advising on deals that I found pretty interesting. So I think that it was kind of a natural progression. I could have seen myself easily in consulting or any different career path. I think that it just happened to be that I naturally progressed into investment banking with my first job. So not really a calling for me, but definitely glad that I ended up there. Mm-hmm. So can you, can you tell us more about what that recruiting process was like for your first internship? It's, it's becoming more common for people to have internships after sophomore year and and a lot of us did but it's definitely difficult with so many firms requiring that you're a junior or just looking for people more or deeper into their college career so how did you how did you go about getting that internship yeah i i gotta still think that i mean for junior year it's a little bit different for internships because you can do a lot more networking and you have a lot of control over it but for sophomore year internships, I got to think it's just fishing with a net instead of a line. I think it's just like applying to literally hundreds of places and then maybe ranking like your top 30 and like sending out a few cold LinkedIn messages to alumni. But other than that, I think that there's just some places that just kind of don't take juniors and you kind of have to apply with an absolutely huge net and see which ones actually bite. And then from there, just actually reaching out to people, even if it's not like the most fair meritocratic process that you have to reach out to people instead of having them evaluate you as a candidate. I feel like that's just kind of how it is, especially sophomore year. So I think it's got to be just volume for me because I know I applied to like 200 places and then Goldman, I didn't really hear back from until at least October. So I think that I just kind of got lucky that way. So you heard back from them that you got the interview. How did you go about reaching out to people at the firm? I imagine you didn't personally know anyone at Goldman Sachs in Salt Lake City? Yes, I just had the first round interview and then they really don't provide that much transparency when you apply just like a general application. Like if you do it through a club, obviously you're going through certain alumni and there's going to be people reaching out to you. But when you just do it through like the general application on their website, there's HR doesn't really reach out to you that much. So I just reached out to a UW alumni. They kind of just gradually connected with more UW alumni that were actually closer to the people that were making decisions about the recruiting process. So it was kind of nice how the UW alumni actually just look out for each other and they're definitely willing to actually guide you along the process rather than just 
kind of getting on the phone and giving you just very general advice. I was very surprised with how practical the process was. So I think that just getting on the phone with somebody, it's kind of interesting to see how eventually they connect you with someone who actually has decision-making ability. Mm -hmm. And can you tell us about the internship, credit research, what you were doing, and why did you end up continuing down the path of investment banking? Did you consider sticking with some sort of research role at a, at a bank? Yeah, uh, for sure. So I actually really like credit research. And to be honest, I think I might actually like the analysis alone better than investment banking. I think that it really had a lot of overlap. The primary thing that we did was that we looked at the credit quality of company that Goldman had fixed income exposure to just from a qualitative standpoint, looking at their revenue quality in terms of how well they were diversified. And then also looking at them from a quantitative standpoint, just projecting out their cash flows, determining the probability of default, which I thought was really a lot more quantitative than the investment banking analysis. The thing that I didn't like is really the end use of the analysis. We would kind of give our recommendation to the investment banking division about whether or not they should be able to sort of upsize their loans if they should sort of reduce their exposure and syndicate part of it off. But it seems like the actual action, the investment banking division wasn't really that correlated with our advice. So while I like the analysis, it just didn't seem like the actual reports were that actionable. It just seems like we would usually tell them like, you probably shouldn't lend and then they would lend anyways. So <laughs> yeah. I guess that was, uh, that was kind of something that deterred me. And that's kind of what made me want to go into the investment banking division, just knowing that they had actual actionability, that the work that you would be doing as an analyst, while you didn't actually get to interact with that many clients, you were actually putting together materials that would have a pretty significant influence on a large scale transaction. So I thought that that was pretty cool. Just the impact that you would have, whether or not it's actually you making decisions, at least your work is having an impact on a lot of people. Yeah. I, th I think that's a big draw for a lot of people just being on the front lines and actually seeing results for a lot of the work that you get to do. Yeah. You were in Salt Lake City for that internship. Did you enjoy it there? Is it somewhere you uh, could see yourself living? I thought, I thought Salt Lake City, like I know the thing that really deters me from actually working there full time is really the cost of living adjustment that they give on their salaries. Like, I mean, New York to Chicago is basically the same compensation, even though Chicago and Salt Lake City have very similar costs of living. But for example, like the risk division in Chicago, they get paid 80,000 to start. New York, 80,000 to start. And then in Salt Lake City, it's like 55,000. So even though the cost of living is pretty similar, they really kind of, really kind of put it downwards a lot. So that was a little bit surprising. I know it's like kind of shallow to say, but I mean, when it's that much of a difference, it's going to pretty significantly impact your decision. But in terms of working there for a summer, I highly recommend it. I think that if, especially if you're going to be working in New York or Chicago for your junior year, I think Salt Lake City has absolutely gorgeous nature, probably like the best hiking I've ever had in my life. Really relaxing, pretty laid back people, but also people that were very intellectually curious. So I thought that was kind of a nice mix. Uh, all the beers capped at 3%, which was an absolute travesty. There was about one liquor store in the entire town. But other than that, I think that it was a great place to live for a summer, but probably not beyond that, unless I was like, over 40 or 50. But I thought it was really great for a summer. Yeah, you got to be all right with not going to the bars too often. But I, I love yeah. Salt Lake City from the times I've been there. Oh, yeah, especially I mean, it's like really close to like a bunch of gorgeous hiking, like three hours away from like Zion arches, all that stuff. So pretty, pretty dang good location, actually. Yeah, 
Yeah, I could totally see myself trying it out down the road. But we've got we've got another internship to talk about. You're in Singapore this past mm. year. Tell us about that. You took a semester off to to go abroad. Tell us about that. Yeah, basically was going to graduate in three and a half years. Uh, kind of worked out for me to take the fall semester off because then I could get a cheap sublet. Maybe because, well, I guess pre-COVID, a lot of people just went abroad during their uh, spring semester. So I figured it'd be more logical to go fall semester since it really didn't matter when I was graduating. But I guess the work that I did there, I thought was incredibly interesting. I really didn't get paid much at all. It's like $1,000 a month. So was pretty, it was actually, I mean, like went out to about like $3 an hour, which was kind of demoralizing. <laughs> but I think that the work actually was probably more interesting than investment banking and working at Goldman. Basically, I was stationed on a portfolio company of the private equity firm. And the portfolio company was an alternative lender that provided capital to impact lenders. And it was basically my job to assess all of the lenders, the impact lenders that the portfolio company lent to from a credit, uh, credit standpoint. So I just developed a regression-based credit model that sort of evaluated both the traditional metrics of the company, like their credit and financial risk operational, but then also the CFO of the portfolio company wanted to try to quantify the impactfulness of each company. So I think that trying to quantify impact was really something that was quite counterintuitive and interesting. And I think that's kind of what got me interested in impact and alternative investing and what kind of made me want to eventually go into it in the future. I think that trying to quantify things like impact and other non-traditional variables was really interesting. And just the fact that if you can actually quantify correctly, you can allow for investors that are impact conscious to be able to allocate their capital to, I guess, end uses that would be really the most efficient in maximizing the impact of each dollar. So I thought that just overall, in terms of intellectual satisfaction, it was really interesting. And just the end use of what you'd actually be doing with the research was even just icing on the cake. So thought all around was really great besides the pay. But yeah, it sounds okay. like an awesome experience. Was it interesting? I imagine a lot of the deals the company worked on were cross-border. Is that right? Yeah, they mainly did. I mean, Indonesia is just a huge market in terms of credit right now. And then Thailand, a lot of stuff in India, some stuff in China as well, but mainly just the Southeast Asian countries. So would you have to, or how would the company deal with different regulatory environments in terms of making sure that whether it's like a supply chain is environmentally friendly or whatever the purpose of the investment was, were you guys doing some sort of auditing on those investments? Yeah, so it actually worked out with the, since we had a bunch of other portfolio companies in the PE firm. So a bunch of other portfolio companies had locations in Indonesia, China, Hong Kong, a lot of the places we did business in. So we would actually be able to do a lot of partnering with them so we could do lending through them. So we actually could do actual loan assessment on the loans that we're giving out individually. So for example, one of the other portfolio companies was called Shopback which just kind of like a, like one of the biggest like e-commerce uh, companies in Southeast Asia. So we could just provide micro loans for people wanting to purchase appliances there. So since we could actually assess the loans there, like through one of the portfolio companies, it kind of made it easier to audit how 
I guess, independent lenders were actually operating. So it sort of made it easier to actually audit since we had similar companies pretty nearby. Yeah, interesting. And I think people don't consider a semester off enough. And being graduated now, I've realized how impactful just having another internship can be. I think it's a lot easier for people to step into a new company or like potentially a, a better internship from already having the experience than if they were to graduate early, go to a full-time job, knowing that they wanted to kind of use it as a stepping stone to a better company or a different job. So I, th- I think that's something a lot more people should consider is trying to squeeze in another internship or getting a semester in a different country to try it out. Because I, I studied abroad and I, I certainly recommend to everyone to try that experience out and live in a different country for a few months. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Because I think like your first few years in college, I don't think you kind of really understand how much a lot of your career decisions are kind of just based on coincidental interactions with friends who kind of happen to be going down the similar path. Mm-hmm. So I think that kind of removing yourself from that for a semester and reevaluating your life priorities is tremendously helpful, can kind of make you maximize those last few years of college now that you have a different perspective. Yeah, definitely. So let's talk more about your JP Morgan internship now. And you mentioned earlier, we both went through recruiting for our after junior year internships during sophomore year before our after sophomore year internships, which was really interesting. And I think most banks have decided to push it back to at least the summer again. But do you want to talk about your experience during that semester recruiting for that internship? And then uh, then we can get into more about the internship in general. Oh, definitely. So uh, yeah, kind of like you were saying, like the year before we obviously had to recruit, it seemed like they were always doing it fall semester junior year, mm-hmm. right? No, sorry. Yeah, fall semester junior year for the recruiting. But then all of a sudden, they I think it was Rothschild that just sprang it upon us that they're going to do their interviews in like a week. And they told us that in basically March, I, I remember. And then it was kind of nice to see that everybody in IBC was equally stressed out, just wondering what the hell was going on. So I think that that was somehow slightly comforting that everybody else was equally stressed out. But I think that either way, we had been doing the interview prep since the fall of sophomore year, just gradually. I think that it just sort of forced us to expedite the process a little bit. And just knowing that you're going to be gauged off of a little bit everybody relative, like in different campuses, but you're mainly just gauged relative to people in the UW campus, I feel like that you're interviewing with, at least preliminarily. So I think that was relatively comforting. But I think that it would really help during the investment banking process to kind of step back and realize what your long-term goal is. Because I think that people that really want to do investment banking don't really know exactly what they want to do after. They just kind of like it because of the optionality. But I feel like you can, like worst case scenario, if you were in an investment banking club and you didn't get the investment banking offer, I think that you can get to a similar path in very, I guess, less intensive ways. So I think that stressing out about the investment banking job and like actually getting an internship is kind of over-exaggerated. Just knowing that if you went to even like some corporate finance shop and then eventually lateraled up, like worst case scenario, you would lose maybe one to two years less of optionality that over the scheme of things over a 60 year career isn't really that much of a deal. So I think that 
taking a step back and realizing the worst, worst, worst case scenario of the recruiting process really isn't as bad as it's perceived to be, just that the recruiting process, comparing yourself to all the people that are in similar shoes to you, kind of makes you stress out about it too much. But I think that for me, it would just help to take a step back and realize that the investment banking internship is really not all that important in terms of your long-term goals. It's just really nice for optionality in the short term, but it's really not something that's necessary to be able to get to where you want to go usually. Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice. I think there's a lot of undue stress with it, but career-specific clubs are probably the most helpful thing in college for you to be able to lock down the career that you're headed down, that you're targeting at least. And for people who are really interested and set on investment banking and maybe down the road are trying to get an internship, what do you think worked best for you for interview prep and networking and just really being able to lock down that internship? Yeah, I guess for, I think it's definitely nice to have a, like at least a running list of where you want to be putting most of your time, because I think that almost everybody in the club almost applies to damn near like every every vac like every vacancy that's possible i think we i i mean i i know i applied to almost like 40 50 banks so i think that just having a running list based on the people that you like so that you can allocate your time efficiently just being able to reach out to uw alumni at least your top 5 to 10 places as much as you can so i think that having a running list definitely helped i think that starting the prep as early as you can just going through the mni guide and brushing up on your technicals I think that it's extremely necessary just since a lot of it, almost none of it is covered in our actual UW-Madison curriculum. So I think that starting that like your fall semester, sophomore year really helps a lot, kind of takes the pressure off and makes you feel more prepared when you actually get to the interviews. But other than that, I would say that just in the networking, making sure that you're authentic, just putting yourself in the shoes of the investment banking analyst you're talking to, I think that they get a lot of requests for these kind of chats. So it definitely helps to level with them and not really kind of hype them up too much. Like don't do anything that seems disingenuous. I think that that kind of helped a lot, but I would also say having a template for each one of your interviews that you can easily edit because I think there's a lot of overlap in the investment banking interview questions. So just realizing kind of the overlaps and keeping a running tally of the questions that you get throughout the processes. I think that really the best way to reduce interview stress is by, by preparing as much as possible. So, I'd say that having the template was probably the thing that eased my attention the most out of anything. Yeah, I think I think that's really good advice, especially about being genuine and not sounding like a robot when you're networking. Because yeah, you, you definitely have to realize that everyone's doing the same thing. So you got to find out a way to stand yeah. out, and to do that, you have to have the people like you that you're talking to. Yeah, that's the other thing too. Because I mean, even if you don't like networking, there are invest like. Pretty much every investment banking analyst gets reached out to. So if you don't like networking, it kind of helps to reach out to somebody that also doesn't seem like they like networking, honestly. Like instead of going up to the people at the info sessions that have like eight people around them and going like a vulture trying to get one word in so they remember your name, I think is not nearly as helpful as going to the one guy who seems a little bit less social, but would definitely appreciate the interaction more. Yeah. And just don't be afraid, I think, to just have a regular conversation with some of these people too. Like yeah, your your main goal is just to get to know them, and hopefully they like you to pass along pass along your name. Yeah. So so you got the internship at the end of sophomore year. Then you went on to work at Goldman Sachs in 
Salt Lake City. Was there any anything weird that came up with that? Did did you even mention to Goldman Sachs that you had that job locked down for the next summer? So that, yeah, they kind of knew right up front, and normally that would actually be pretty advantageous. I think now, especially with recruiting being pushed back to late fall because they have a really great internal mobility program. So I think that if you could sort of lock down something like that your sophomore year, I think that that really facilitates a transition into investment banking recruiting if you want to lateral into that. But for me, it actually kind of was a disadvantage because in order for them to actually do the internal mobility, you had to wait until after everybody actually applied during the spring semester of sophomore year. So basically by the time I got to the internal mobility applications at the end of the summer, it seemed like it was almost pointless because all the spots were filled. But I think going forward, that would probably be advantageous, just being upfront with the people that you're with and expressing your intention to lateral Mm -hmm. to a different division. I think it's incredibly common. And I think that going forward, when there's actually fall recruiting, I think that'd be a great spot to be if there's a firm that you like. So going in and trying to get like a non-revenue generating division your sophomore year that is actually likely to take you something like credit research or asset management or something like that, that maybe is more tolerant of sophomores would probably be actually helpful going forward. But unfortunately it wasn't for me because of the spring recruiting. Cause you did, when, when did you end up signing your offer for your JP Morgan internship? I think I signed that like early May and the internship at Goldman started late May. So at that point, I think I was just pretty upfront with them, Okay, which I think if you were actually trying to lateral in would be a good way to do it because they seem supportive of it. Yeah. Yeah. That, that makes sense. Do you want to get into uh, talking about your internship at JP Morgan and uh, what that experience was like? You're obviously going back. So you liked it enough and there's one team in Chicago. Is that right? Yeah. So they just have industrials in Chicago. And actually I think that there was a pretty unique mix because they had, I think the JP Morgan industrials division for investment banking in Chicago has the highest revenue count per head of any division in JP Morgan, uh, except it was still a very laid back office, which is odd because usually you would think if there's a high revenue count, there would be a lot of MDs that were actually producing revenue. But there was basically just two senior MDs that were out selling almost all the time. And then everybody else in the office was kind of just young VPs, associates and analysts. So it was very laid back, but we still had solid deal flow, which was kind of a unique mix. So the fact that they were always out pitching meant that as soon as they left at like three o'clock, everybody's shirts came untucked, somebody jumped on the ox cord, and it was just a really laid back environment, which I really liked. Uh, But I guess kind of having that mix of just strong deal flow, but still almost no seniors in the office was really quite a unique mix. And I think that that's really the main thing that made me want to go back. And what about living in Chicago? I mean, we were there together. Were you just as open originally to being in Chicago as you were in New York. What were your thoughts on where you wanted to live after school? Yeah. So I've, I've gone like back and forth about this a little bit. I think that I really like Chicago mainly because I knew that I was going to get the MBA after. And I think that the MBA is kind of like a reset in terms of recruiting. So just being in Chicago, being able to get the same salary at a, lower cost of living and being just in an area that I enjoy much more. I just really like Chicago more than New York in terms of livability. So I think that that was kind of a no brainer for me, but just looking into it, it doesn't seem other than, I mean, you can chime in here if you see like anything different, but it seems like 
the main advantages for New York is that if you want to go into like a New York City mega fund or something like that, it seems like it'd be a little bit, quite a bit more difficult if you went from Chicago. But other than that, it seems like your odds of getting into like a solid middle market PE firm or having the optionality to go to a different route, it seems like it's very similar Chicago to New York, but maybe you can correct me if you see anything else advantageous about working in New York, especially if you don't like living in New York. I do think one of the clear benefits is probably just easier access to the mega funds for private equity if if that's something yeah. that people are really interested in. Um, okay, so you've mentioned an MBA quite a few times. What's the thought process behind that? Why are you so set on it? I know it's becoming less and less common, but still like an excellent place for networking and like you said, pivoting your careers. Yeah, for sure. So, I mean, uh, like you said, like there's a little bit of a debate about what the actual benefits of an MBA are in terms of short term, especially if you want to stay in investment banking, I would say that it is short term benefits. It's almost useless. I mean, you let's say that you were an analyst for two to three years at an investment banking firm. You went and got your MBA. You'd be coming in at the exact same position as if you didn't get the MBA and you'd have basically $180,000 left in your pocket. But I think that I mean, I guess it's the same kind of even if you're going into private equity, I guess it's a little bit of a boost and helps you get into maybe a little bit better of a firm, but you could have made that jump just as easy before you got your MBA than afterwards. And some people would argue that it even hurts your chances of getting into that program because it's more competitive strictly out of the MBA program. But I think that the long-term benefits is really what does it for me. I think that just having that connection of the network of people that will also be going into investing, and especially if I want to be able to eventually start my own business or start my own fund. I think that having those connections will really help entrepreneurial wise, but I, I guess I really do see the ambiguity of the benefits of the MBA short term. But I think the thing that it will do for me long-term is the connection with the network and then just the reputability associated with it that makes it easier to raise capital. Yeah, that, that definitely makes sense. And I think as far as I know, pretty spot on on, on the, the long-term benefits of it. Let's see. I've still got some questions. If you have time, kind of go through like a speed round, I guess, or we'll see how long it takes to answer these questions. Yeah, cut me off whenever you need to. All right. Sounds good. So let's start off with, you don't have a job right now. You get like a couple million in funding. What industry or what company do you think you'd want to start? but we have all the same problems that we do right now and all the same technologies. So this is something that you'll be working on for the next 20 years of your life or, or more. What, what industry, what, what area excites you the most right now? All right. I'll give you, I'll give you like the answer that I would go with. If I just want to have a lot of fun for 20 years and I'll go with a different, like actual practical answer to that. But I got to say, I would start up like five barbecue joints. If I had like a million dollars, I think that that'd probably be like, the best way that I could maximize my happiness. Like I've never seen like a sad barbecue joint owner and it just seems like so fun, like actually developing the recipes and like bottling your own sauce. Like there's so many different avenues you can go off of besides the actual restaurants. I think that that would just be so damn fun too. So that'd be my fun answer. If, if you don't have a barbecue restaurant one day, I'm going to be so sad. Honestly, I'm like, I, I could not imagine not having one. They like for a retirement plan, that seems like it'd be so sick, but I guess the practical answer would be like, is it, considering like if we had like the same problems we do now, I think that 
honestly, the impact lending space is really interesting. I think that there's pretty easy ways to pro provide productive assets to companies that also distribute it. So not even you having to make the investments to like the end users, like the microfinancing companies in Indonesia that provide the loans to farmers, like you don't actually have to give it directly to the farmers. I think that just sort of distributing it to alternative lenders and microfinance companies in those areas would be really interesting. I think it'd be pretty cool analysis to be stimulating and then also just the best way to solve the existing problems that you mentioned that exist in this hypothetical scenario. So I think I'd go with that. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think I think that's such a cool space because you're really just empowering people that way yeah. by providing them with capital they need. Well, I mean, yeah, it's just like amazing, like the kind of yields that they're working with that are like, I mean, in the, when I was working in Singapore, like the companies that we're lending to, like we were lending at like 18 to 20% and the default rates were really pretty shockingly low. It just, they're so underbanked that they don't have any better access to credit. Mm -hmm. So when people think like impact investing, they usually think equity wise, but I think that the credit side of it is really quite interesting and provides yields that are almost more attractive, honestly. Mm -hmm. How about if you could have dinner with three people dead or alive, who would you have it with? Who are they at? Are they at the, are they like all together or are they separate? Uh, yeah, you, you can do it however you want. Probably three separate dinners. But if you think they'd be a cool group to talk to together, then you can have that. I'd go Dalai Lama for one of them, definitely. I think that he's probably favorite author. I think that he has like a really kind of balancing aspect for like the rest of the people that I would invite that would probably be more business related. I think he can sort of be a good mediator between parties. Uh, the next one I think would be Malcolm Gladwell. I think he's probably another one of my favorite authors. Also a good mix. I think he tells really interesting stories. So that'd be kind of another interesting person to have on. And then I guess you'll probably eat this one up, but Elon Musk, I think kind of hard to leave off. I mean, just for pure entertainment purposes, I think that he probably wouldn't be able to like articulate any like interesting concepts to me that I'd like be able to understand. But I think you'd just be like a great like person to like have banter with the other two people. So I think I'd go Gladwell, Dalai Lama, Elon Musk. You'd have them together. You think they'd get along enough to yeah. to have dinner with you and be able to have a good conversation? Yeah, it's like the it's like the unpopular table at the wedding party. I just like insert myself into that one. So I think it'd be pretty cool. Uh, that would be an interesting dinner for sure. How about if you were to do any other profession right now besides investment banking? What would you do? I think that uh, psychotherapy would be incredibly interesting. I think that just being able to like establish intimate connections with people and then also just being able to simultaneously learn about how the brain functions and other unconscious patterns of the brain would be a chance to learn how to connect with people while simultaneously learning how to better understand your own brain. So I think that that would be definitely something that I'd want to go into if I couldn't do anything related to finance. Interesting. Have, have you been meditating lately? Yeah, I, I've been reading like a bunch of there's like an author called Mark Epstein. He writes, he got like his PhD from Harvard in economics. And then he went to India to learn how to meditate for like four years and like met with the Dalai Lama and a bunch of other interesting monks and then came back, got his PhD in psychotherapy. So he like provides like an interesting bridge between like the rational economic side of things. And then like the psychotherapy side with also like reconciling the Buddhist meditation styles as well. So I think that that's really interesting kind of, probably would provoke the answers. Interesting. Yeah. And I, I guess this kind of 
leads into this and you could give the same answer, but do you have a book or favorite book that you recommend that everyone reads or, or even a specific group if you have that in mind? Uh, I guess like a specific book that would be like a great one, especially for like beginning meditators would be 10% happier. I think that it'd be good, especially from like a finance industry perspective, just kind of looking at that with a little bit of initial skepticism as I know I did just because the like pop culture associated with meditation is so over-exaggerated and really kind of over-promising. But I think he kind of goes at it from like a very skeptical, rational perspective and really rationalizes why meditation is realistic and something that anybody can do. So I would say 10% Happier by Dan Harris would be a great starter book. Yeah, I, I love that book too. What about what about any other books just in general outside meditation? you have any recommendations for people to to read any any books that have been really impactful in in your life? Uh, I would say the uh, oh, oh blink by Malcolm Gladwell I think is a really good one because he in the book he t- sort of talks about like uh, really how I guess effective the subconscious is at making decisions. It kind of like examines the overall thought process that goes into how the subconscious works. And it kind of provides a little bit of a contradiction to thinking that rational thinking is really the only way to make effective decisions. So I think that Blink by Malcolm Gladwell is a really interesting non-finance, non-meditation one. Interesting. I haven't read that one yet, but I'm a big fan of Malcolm Gladwell, his books and his podcast. Yeah. Well, Matt, I don't want this to run too long, but it's been fun, and I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to the show. I've got some exciting interviews coming up, so please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. My email is in the About section if you care to give any feedback or have any questions. I'm Wally Estenson, and you've been listening to The Wally Pod.